Um, yes, you're right. We do, in fact, that is part of our culture. It really is based upon do good now and get good later. Mm. This goes back to the old understanding of the law of comma. And I've said that law comma and talked about it so much I can hear some of the students listening to this tape now saying, oh no, he's not going to do his comma. <laughs> <laughs> but it basically is based uh, boiled back down to comma in the in the uh, delusional belief that if we do good action later we're going to get good result. Now the teacher the Buddha doesn't teach that way. He talks about it really in the sense of cause effect relationships or in the sense of skill building. If you start developing a skill now, then you can count on that skill to be capable of further development. That's basically the knowledge or the trust that we have, but it's a trust in our ability to do something as opposed to the trust in something's going to happen. Yeah, I think the latter is the way I'm thinking in that I am building a skill set <coughs> which I can apply to this problem. But that's the whole point is that the more skills we have, the less we see things as a problem. Mm. I just talked to Agnes about this, okay? We, in fact, the human being is very good at being a... Uh, a dot connector, or uh, we can investigate and like connect the dots, or we can see sequences. Mm. But we are not very good at being a problem solving machine. And yet, that because in fact, we're as human beings as we are now, are not up to the standards of being a real problem solving machine. We're stuck down at that level of we can at least connect the dots we can at least do an investigation, that much that we can do. But we have to uh, sort of put ourselves into the position of thinking that we are problem-solving machines. Part of our delusional system is that we're problem-solving machines, and it has many different drawbacks to it. <laughs> the easy and funny one is, is that if you are a problem-solving machine and that is your identity and that's who you are, then your whole feeding system, your input, is problems to be solved. Therefore, when you come to a state that there are no problems to be solved, now you've really got a problem. Because your identity is gone. Who am I if I don't have a definition of who I am based upon what I'm doing to solve problems? But when and there are no problems. <laughs> that's, just, that's very interesting. So, I mean, cause this is what you hear about it happening time and time again with people that retire. It's not always Absolutely. the case, but they retire and all of a sudden, well, they're dead within five years because the meaning has evaporated after their life there was one occasion that i had that i found myself 
uh, over a long story I won't tell you. Uh, I found myself in the hallway of the corporate offices of this uh, company called Sunoco. And, and I'm not talking about Sun Oil Company, but Sunoco b- makes products like the can for Pringles, Mars bars, wrappers, candy wrappers, the very fancy colored paper uh, boxes for, for sugary food. Those are the kinds of things that this company makes. And they, by the way, been computerized. I knew about Sunoco from the 1960s when they had one of the first IBM 360s in the state of South Carolina. So that's how long I've known this company. So here I am years later in in, in the corporate offices and recognizing that on the, the whole wall over the years is covered with um, a, a large photo and the description of people who have been old-time employees who have died. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking at the last, his retirement date and his death date, are almost always too close together to be of anything other than remarkable. One, two years at best, they're gone. Mm-hmm. And there's even a story about this in Hartsville that has to do with a Harley-Davidson dealership. Because he was just a motorcycle place that was just about to go under because of the lack of business in general. Until he had the idea of uniting these guys who were retiring from Sunoco. Because this is a one-company town. And getting them into the motorcycle club. And that whole thing got interrupted for a while. Because they found some purpose, and that was a hangout at the back door or the back uh, office of the Harley-Davidson dealership. And he sold a few Harleys along the way with it. And so that was a good thing for him to do, <clears throat> that Harley-Davidson dealership kept a few old dudes alive for a few years. If they hadn't had that, they'd all been dead on their riding lawn mirrors the next summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, you're exactly right that uh, the, the human mind is built that way. If we don't have any problems to solve, we lose our identity and people can go into depression with that, without yeah. that identity, without that ability to have an identification. And we often define ourselves as to what we do. Yeah, I agree. And this all goes under that label of problem solving, which we're not actually very good at anyway. <laughs> Although I have heard it said that um, the human mind is is biased towards um, detecting what is out of place or wrong in a, as a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not quite good at doing that, if you're thinking everything's sunny and rosy all the time, but there's a saber-toothed tiger around the next rock, then you get exactly. Eaten. But uh, the Buddha doesn't say it like that. He says, "Look at what's going on. Look at the reality of the situation." So either we have, and this this happens on both sides. Either we are too rosy, or we are too pessimistic. Mm. But finding that sweet spot in the middle where we can actually keep watching what's really going on, then sometimes we're up and sometimes we're, you know, 
it depends upon what down means, but you, you stay with the reality of the situation rather than having um, an overly pessimistic view is just as dangerous as an overly optimistic view that false negatives can be just as dangerous as false positives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've noticed uh, in, in often in retired people, actually, in, is that, uh, you know, all of a sudden they, they, their lives are simplified, there's much less in them, generally speaking, and they just start inventing all sorts of problems <laughs> out, of, out of thin air. Things that really weren't an issue before now are a big deal, you know. Okay, but there are healthy things that these old codgers could do, and one of them would be to get a hobby. Oh, yeah. Or probably a, a more, uh, let us call it a young person's way of saying that is get a life. <laughs> Please go get a life. Go find something that's worthwhile doing and do it well. And some old people do that. In fact, we've got uh, um, every, you know, once in a while, there'll be something about some old person who is really worth knowing that has just died. In fact, we've got a whole spate of musicians and uh, elderly people that are dying of COVID and are getting some highlights in the, in the media. And so mm -hmm. I, I like to see that, too. Uh, not that I like to see that they're dead, but like to see that they're getting some uh, recognition for a life well lived. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, because most of them, they don't live a, uh, a life that's well lived. We don't. We don't do it. Why? I don't know. Why can't the schools teach children how to have a joyful, wonderful life? Oh, so far, when Olivia and I were talking about exactly this last night. Exactly this. What has gone wrong? Actually, here's what's gone wrong. The people who think they can make some money out of you by keeping you working have been able to take over. And they're the ones who, uh, it's the greed who runs the world. And, and in fact, everybody becomes greedy and thinks that the more we get, the more we have, uh, and the better we'll be. But in fact, what happens is the more we get, the more we want, and it's just more wanting. Yeah. And, and, and everyone's, all the politicians are brainwashed with it, all the business leaders are brainwashed with it. Uh, it, it and, and, and then the, the kids become contaminated with it. And you can, you can look at what happens at Christmas time. Where? Yeah, under the tree at home or in the department store? Well, it's just in the department <laughs> stores, all these kids wanting all this rubbish that they'll play with for five minutes and then it just gets ignored uh it's just want 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 if the kid doesn't get a whole lot of presents he's disappointed but if he gets a whole lot of presents then he doesn't have a favorite and none of them actually wind up meaning anything mm. If he gets one good thing that everybody says, no, you can't have that, you're too young, and he gets it anyway, that's going to make him happy. <laughs> that, in fact, is a really good lesson in generosity. 
is to learn to give people the gifts that they want to have, not what is expected of you to give. That's just being that parent ego state or going along to get along or the herd mentality or uh, going along with social conventions. But generosity is best served when the guy who gets the gift, the recipient of it, is well pleased, surprised. Yeah. Okay, giving a kid a puppy, and the kid's been asking for a puppy for a long time, and mom and dad have both said, no way are you going to get a puppy. And then they bring one home. And that kid's going to light up, okay? That's the kind, That's what real jo- gratitude and joyful uh, giving and uh, generosity, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And so this is how I was taught as a monk to be grateful because there's a certain idea that, in fact, it's really worth a long discussion about, should a monk say thank you? The answer is no, but he should show his joy, which has the form of gratitude built into it. That thank yous are are formal and they don't really mean anything. And it also has the quality of uh, robbing the person of their their joy, let us say, if they have the idea of making merit. If you thank them now, then they won't see the merit in the future. That's the, the crazy way of looking at it. And some people have that. But another way of looking at it is, is that if you are actually practicing generosity and gratitude, then you want the person to have the benefit of their generosity right there for them by giving them back uh, gratitude, which can be done as simply as with an eyes open and a smile to say that you liked what they've given you. So but in the real world out there, you can actually gush and make a big deal out of it. Yeah. Which becomes a sort of uh, a, a drama, a display. Somehow well, a show of affection, a show of friendship, yeah, yeah. a show of uh, mutual generosity and gratitude. That this is no longer a business deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in, and in many ways, even feeding the monks can become a business deal. I give you food and the God machine is going to give me a future better life or something like that as part of that business deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. But here we're looking at it. No, it's not a business deal. It is uh, generating joy right now. But that's the whole point of it. That's where the generosity comes from. And part of that joy of the generosity is that it engenders the feeling of wealth. What do we mean by wealth? I mean in the sense of I've got enough. I've got plenty. I can easily give this away and do not feel any pain at all. That's real wealth, to feel that way. And when we have that wealth and that generosity, then we get more joy out of giving a gift than we would have if we had kept the money. Mm-hmm. And that's what altruism really is all about. That's the heart of it. 
and you'll see some people who are politically altruistic, and you'll see people that are politically selfish. Also, you can see it in businessmen, like the philanthropers of the past century. The robber barons themselves are the ones who started the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, uh, the um, uh, Carnegie, I said the Carnegie, uh, um, many, many of the foundations that are philanthropy oriented, even in modern times, we have Bill Gates. Bill Gates has figured out that all the money he made at Microsoft didn't make him as happy as giving it now away. And so we have a Bill Gates Foundation that uh, basically solved the problem of uh, uh, AIDS and did other research. So, malaria it, was his big thing. Yeah, it? that's right. Malaria. He did a lot of good stuff with malaria also. So uh, this is the philanthropy. But why mm. did Bill have to wait until he's an old codger to give himself the pleasure of generosity? Maybe it took him a while to work it out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> because the old show, the old saw, the old act, the old story, uh, the old song and dance of our society is your more is your better. Yeah. My more is my better for me. Yeah. And there is so much selfishness built into our culture. I'm definitely, definitely guilty of that. Okay, so by seeing it, we can begin to come out of it so that we begin to see more friendship and altruism that, in fact, uh, is an important point for students to begin to understand uh, a sutta. Actually, the name of it is half, half sutta. Mm. And the half is the uh, Ananda comes to the Buddha and says that from Sariputta, uh, uh, Sariputta told Ananda that, uh, that friendship is half of the Dhamma. And the Buddha corrects him and says, no, that's not true. Friendship is all of the Dhamma. In the sense, it's when you can stop trying to be at war with yourself and become friends with yourself when you can become friends with your worst nature so that you can begin to take control of it, when you can become friends with people who you wouldn't want to be friends with, when you become friends with everything, what else is there left now? That is the Dhamma, is learning how to be friendly, to be friends with everything. And so... um, This also, you can see where that fits right into the fetters in the sense of the high fetter of conceit, that friendship destroys conceit. What is conceit? Is I am compared to others. This is our competitive nature. And we have that because of fear. The basis of competition is fear. That if I don't win, I'll die. Mm combat okay and that's deeply buried into our down into our genes that Mm. that winning is an issue of survival because at one time it was and a lot of people live their lives like that now 
But in the reality of our situation, no, you're not afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. So why should you be trying to defend yourself? Why, you, why are you competing with anybody? So we can be friends instead. We can cooperate. We can share. We can be generous with one another. Can, and, can I... Can I just wind that back just slightly? And you were talking about the root of conceit being the fear of essentially dying. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, for most of us, fortunately, is no longer an issue. In reality, it's, it's not. Emotionally, it is. It, it, yeah. And, and so that... So the personality is under threat. Pardon? In other words, what I am, what I identify with, that is what could die. And I notice, I think in myself a lot, that's where a lot of my fears and anxieties are starting to come up. This is all getting a little bit scary, you know. This is this is pretty radical stuff. It's asking me, or I'm starting to ask yeah, myself. I'm after digging your grave, to, and I to, know it. Yeah, <laughs> to, to chuck all this shit in, into a hole, <laughs> and all that shit that goes in the hole, I identify with as me. Mm -hmm. So that me is dying. He's yes, under threat. It, is. it always has been, and you didn't recognize it. But you never have been the same. You are not the same as you were when you were in diapers. You're not the same as you were when you were in the first grade. The first grader and the diaper wearer are not the same person. The nine-year-old is not the same as the three or uh, the six-year-old. The fourteen-year-old, for one hundred percent, is not the same as he was when he was ten. <laughs> that was only four years. <laughs> okay. And yet we seem to have the delusion that we're the same person, that there's a continuity there. And the only continuity is the continuity of how we feel and think. But everything else has changed. And memories. Memories, exactly. How we feel. Yeah. But most of our memories are actually feeling members. We know how to, we remember how to feel. But facts, we're not so good at remembering. <laughs> You're right there. But we do know how to feel. Well, there's basically only about five or ten feelings, and so we only have so much to learn to, how to feel. And so we pick our favorite bad feeling, and that's who I am today. But we don't recognize that when I say, okay, but that's where I was yesterday, and now I'm this today. But I think that it's the same person that's that today and this tomorrow, when in fact it's a different person. Everything is fluid, and we have the delusion that it is stable. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so what we come to understand then is, is that personality is in fact not only not stable, but it can be guided and shaped into the way that we want it to be. That we do not, we are not bound by providence. We are not bound by our past. The past does not determine the future like the law of commas tends to make you feel. 
Okay, which leads then to even with Christian uh, ideas about uh, providence and um, um, determinism or uh, is there free will versus are, are things determined? Well, the answer is, is that so long as you're stuck in the habits of the past, you are stuck in determinism. You are, in fact, living out a destiny. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword and all of that kind of mentality that goes with it. But you are not stuck. You're not bound by the past. You can wake up out of it. You have a choice. Are you going to live according to the past? Are you going to start living the way you want to live? And this is the basic choice. That's the wake up. And that wake up is actually the teachings of the Buddha, Dukkha or Dukkha Naroda. Are you going to live according to the past and live along the suffering that that, that occurs? Are you going to wake up and live the way that you want to, which is basically free from suffering? But you have to remember to do that because the natural tendency is to fall back into the old habit. Oh, yes. And then, and then we remember to come out of it. And then we have a moment and then we forget and then we're back into it again. Yeah. And this is that sati. Keep remembering, keep coming out, keep coming back. And when we come back, we don't say, oh, it was so hard because it wasn't. All we had to do is remember to come out of it and out we come. Yeah, especially when we have that quality of aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I see what I was doing. I see what I was in. Yeah. So the Buddha tells the story about the wandering elephant. When they catch an elephant, they tie him up by uh, vine and ropes to a post or a pillar that they've uh, pounded into the uh, the ground. And they always tie the elephant up by the left hind leg. And the elephant then, whenever nobody's looking, he stands on three legs or maybe with his trunk as uh, more stability. And he's swinging that left leg, left hind leg, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until he finally uh, weakens the vine and he can break free. Where does the animal go? Where does the elephant go? He goes home. He goes back to his haunt. The animal trainers know that they're going to catch that elephant more or less where they saw him last time. Mm -hmm. That's where he's going to head to because he probably was in his herd. And so that's where his herd was. He's going home. At least he'll start there so that he can then locate where they moved to. So that they know him exactly. So what they do is they go there and they grab that elephant. When they pull him back, they put him back in the ground. And here he goes again, back and forth and back and forth until he pulls loose again and off he goes. After about 10 or 15 times of this cycle, that's when the elephant begins to recognize there's no reason to keep back and forth and back and forth and get struggling and getting free because I'll just be tied up again. And so that's how they train the elephant. The important part about that for the meditator is, is that we can see it from two different positions. One is, is that we can see that that being tied to that post is very much like being tied to the breath with Anapanasati, swinging back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until we get free. And then off the mind goes. 
But where does it go? It goes home. It goes back to its old haunt. It goes back to the same old that it was doing. And so we know exactly where to catch that mind, bring him back again, tie him up to the breath again, and, and put him into training. So this is actually a teaching of the Buddha. about, And it has those two qualities to it. One is, is that we all, we begin to understand when we have hindrances that we have favorite hindrances. The mind tends to go off into the same place over and over and over again. And we catch it and we bring it back to the present moment. And this is the practice. And so when we think about that, we can recognize, wait a minute, this is actually a very simple process because it's actually uh, solving a very simple problem. That very simple problem is, is to come out of the suffering of the past and the future into the present moment where things are really hunky-dory. <laughs> but it's not simple. Pardon? It, but it's not simple. The practice is simple, but letting go of the past, it, well, for me, it's so I am so identified with it, so connected to it, it feels so much a part of me that it, it, it's, it's... But you're already it's, beginning to intellectually understand, but it's not really. Oh, no, I... I you yeah, already I, understand, I am really not those feelings. When I'm angry, it's not me that's angry. It's just I, anger has taken I, over. Absolutely. I'm just saying that <laughs> it's not... It, if we... Um, <laughs> F.M. Alexander said this. He said, if you could let go of the habits of a lifetime in an instant, that would be it. Problem solved. End of story. In a way, I disagree. And the reason that I disagree is because all the habits of a lifetime weren't learned in this lifetime. We came fully loaded with a set of baggage we called instincts. And then yeah. in fact, it's because we keep living, we are in the habit of living in instincts. That is the cause of the problem that if we could give up the habits of a lifetime of living instinctually, so that then now we're living the life that's the habit of waking up and seeing what's going on and having control of our instincts. That's well, the that, way that I would say it. That's, that's exactly what he was saying. And what he, he made very clear is that those instincts evolved over millions of years for a natural environment. And we no longer live in that live natural in that environment. environment. <laughs> so we're going to have to grab hold of those instincts and start reworking them for ourselves. And, and guess what? We've got just the machine to do it. Too. And we've got just the machine to do it. And once you've done that, yeah, why would you go back to the old way? Even if you've modified those instincts into new appropriate instincts for your environment why would you go back to relying on them well that's one of the reasons what the christians use as to why you don't ever see someone that's been in heaven come back to earth is who'd want to do that <laughs> <laughs> but point well taken of course of course yeah, yeah. once we can be free from the bondage why would we go back into the bondage yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I, and and you you talk so much about the frontal lobe and using our human brain, as Alexander also talked about. I mean, that's what he was all about, and it it is so important. But and I I personally become all enthused about it and start making lots and lots of progress and then I go back to getting lazy again I go back to Welcome instinct to land the human race and it's it, it I I pendulum <laughs> I'm afraid well, <laughs> welcome to the human ball. race everyone does that here in fact generally what uh, happens also um, and that is is that the uh, the, the guy really does practice well. He's getting really, really good results. He's enjoying those results. He's even gotten to the point of saying, I know I can do this. And because he has that, now he's going to kind of take a break. I can take it easy because I've got it. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> it's like waking up to full-blown Duke. How could I have gotten myself into this situation when I thought I was on top of the world? Okay. okay. And that the analogy that I use with that is the analogy of uh, shaving. And that is, is that if you've got a big, heavy beard and what you've got, you, I mean, it's nice, it's beautiful, it's a nice, sported thing. Uh, <laughs> But it is nothing compared to the kind of stuff that those rag wearers in India will get with, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, uh, matted hair. Oh, no, the, dread, the dreadlocks. Yeah, That's dreadlocks. Right. Okay, right. dreadlocks, matted hair, animals, bugs, all kinds of stuff in there. Yeah. And shaving that the first time is very much like learning to meditate. Yeah. It seems like so much effort. Yeah. And it keeps dulling the razor. But eventually we get a pretty good shave, right? And then yeah. we shave ourselves again and we get pretty good at it. And they say, you know, I look pretty good while I'm clean shaven. Yeah. And so we don't shave for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yes. <laughs> and that's the idea that the guys get is, is that if I really get good at shaving, I won't have to shave anymore. <laughs> but that, but the beard grows out of instinct. The anger will still be there. So will the um, uh, fear. But now we've gotten control of them. We've become really expert at shaving. It's almost like we carry our own mindfulness shaver blade around doing this most of the day. Feels good. Yeah, I feel all right. Wait a minute. I feel all right. Out you go. <laughs> And so we begin to live our lives that way, knowing that if we're not mindful, if we're not watching what we're doing, things are going to start growing again on us, that that's the natural way of it of it going. Um, uh, example would be when the mice, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And so um, but. If the dog is barking and I see what the dog is barking at and I recognize there's really no trouble, then I can just say, down boy, down boy, and they'll shut up. 
But if there is something out there like somebody I don't know, and I keep trying to figure out who it is, or if it's actually a dog, I'll start barking too. That's giving the dogs full-on permission to be in their full survival or um, territorial instinct mode. And so, see, I know what's going on, so I can control both sides of that. We need to learn to do that with our own emotions so that we know how to manage our own fear. We know how to manage, not just get rid of it. We're not going to get rid of our fear, but we can make it to bring it to the point that it's well managed. So that when it's arising, we know that it's arising, that in fact, it's a good tool. Uh, Fear keeps us alive. Without fear, humans wouldn't have survived up until the point they are. You could go so far as to say that the um, fear is the primary communication device of the uh, self-preservation instinct. That the ogre horn of the alert system for the self-preservation instinct is the adrenaline sh- stuff that comes up according to fear. It comes out of the pituitary or penal gland right down into the adrenaline gland and we just get pumped right up. This is what happens. And uh, that's a natural uh, instinct. But we can also tell fear um, wisely. An example of being able to see fear wisely or feel see danger wisely is with the coronavirus you do not have to have someone in your family to die to know that coronavirus is danger and out of compassion when we go out we're fully protected if we go out at all that's that's uh uh danger that comes from wisdom many people have no wisdom so they're not afraid of it and they're going out doing all kinds of dangerous things Mm. But if their granny gets sick and dies, or if they get sick, then they'll begin to get the wisdom. Wait a minute, this is not a hoax. (laughs) There may be something to all of this. But you see how far they had to go when they could have been wise to it in the first place. So this is the whole idea then about the teachings of the Buddha is that as we begin to gain wisdom, We no longer need so much the instinct of fear because we can see what's dangerous. But we don't want to get rid of it altogether because that means then that we have to always be wise to stay into a safe environment. Mm -hmm. But we can use fear as, uh, let us say, an alert system to wake up to see what's going on. And so we don't want to destroy our fear. Just like you don't, you don't want to kill a dog just to shut him up when he's barking. You want to make friends with him. You want to let him feel that he's safe and secure because you're the alpha and you're going to take care of whatever it is he's barking at. That's the way that we begin to look at it. So we can't kill this stuff off, but we can learn to manage it completely. We can manage our herding instinct. We can manage our territorial instinct. We can manage our um, uh, grasping and clinging to material possessions. We can learn to manage that. That all of this stuff is actually built into the practice of Anapanasati and the practice of the Buddha. Is learning to manage these instincts, not to destroy them or get rid of them, Mm -hmm. but to take over. 
you become the boss. You are not angry. <laughs> You're just dealing with anger. <laughs> but it's a, a, a lot of the, uh, the challenge for me, and I think probably everybody, once you get involved with uh, this process, uh, is starting to pick up the early warning signs earlier and earlier and earlier earlier exactly. the earlier you can do that the greater chance of success you have it uh it seems not only that That's but there's another way of looking at it and that is the earlier and earlier we can as you use the word pick up on it that means that it doesn't require so much heavy duty processing to come to the right conclusion, that we can process just a little bit and see it very quickly. This is the, the quality of wisdom uh, to where our perception doesn't get so bound up. This is one of the reasons why I would be cautious about students who are talking about the Mahasi method of noting, because mm. when they're doing it wrongly, the noting becomes um, uh, more of a labeling process or doing a whole lot of intellectualization about what happened just a moment ago or a fraction of a second ago while they continuously miss out on what's happening now. So they're, 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 they're noting the past all the time mm -hmm. and get, it's sort of getting them stuck. And so we become too closely focused uh, on trying to note rather than um here's an example of that and i thought i might have used this before and that is is that we use the word witness in two completely different ways one is the witness who saw the scene saw the crime saw the uh, episode uh the accident the bank robbery whatever he saw it and then later there's the kind of witness who is on the witness stand telling a story about what he saw now, which one of those two witnesses would you think that would be the most appropriate kind of way of describing what the word noting means in reference to Mahasi? Well, the guy that was there in the present moment. Obviously, mm -hmm. the more the more uh, precise you're trying to be in your noting, the more processing and the slower that processing is going to be so inevitably you're going to be more and more stuck in the better job you try and do so it's it's got to be short quick uh-huh a certain exactly. sort of mind is going to be good at that isn't it mm -hmm. and so in fact the way that we could say noting uh when done very well doesn't even rise to the level of a word because so much stuff is happening an example of that is put your thumbs together like this. Put your hands together and roll your thumbs around in a certain way so that you can actually, here we go, like that. You can yeah. feel them, okay? Now, actually experience, feel what the thumbs are actually feeling <laughs> and then tell me a story about what it is is actually going on. There is so much stuff going on you could not possibly tell me all that you can experience look at how much is happening and <laughs> if you're paying attention okay our reality is like that so much stuff is happening all at the same time that we have no time to tell ourselves stories about it 
Yeah. Until we get in back into the habit of telling ourselves stories. And when we're telling ourselves stories, we're not paying attention to what's happening right now. Yeah. One is Dukkha. The other one is Dukkha Naroda. Being in the present moment is not suffering. But being caught in the past is actually being out of reality. Is being bound. It's not freedom. So when when I'm actually sitting, often I'll find that um, it's it's just an experience I'm passing through. And I've I've got no real memory of what I'm just in this in this bubble, and I'm moving along with this bubble. What has happened? I've forgotten, and I'm not even thinking about what's coming. I'm just in this bubble. Does that sound quite um, describe appropriate? The describe the bubble to me. Well, sometimes it's very clear very crisp full of detail other times it's much more ethereal okay there's less detail there's but uh, there is pleasant even though we're using the word bubble we shouldn't have mental conceptions of a giant soap bubble. No, I assume. Not. No, 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 that's not quite right. Um, the a little, maybe a little soap bubble. <laughs> maybe a little ditty soap bubble. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's one of the ways that it's described in more Mahayana literature of around. 500 years after the the Buddha, there is a sutta that talks about that life is our reality or whatever we want to use the word is like foam, is like a bubble. Everything is popping and changing like that. So everything is in. But the way the impression or the image that I was giving getting is, is that you were in some giant sphere like shaped bubble that had a rainbow over in one corner or something no 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 i i didn't do that very well (laughs) (laughs) i didn't describe that very well um but you're actually talking about a state of mind i assume yeah yeah, a state of mind and that state of mind has the quality of being lightweight free almost Floating. Yeah, very. There's, there's no, no stress about it. There's no, there's no concern. There's no, there's no striving. Right. So uh, here's the deal, then, that we've got to work on. Now that we know what you're talking about, and you, you're getting a language for yourself with it. What we need to do now is practice gaining the skill of being able to get into that state easily and often. The next skill that we need to develop is the skill of being able, once you get into that state, of maintaining it Mm -hmm. so that it lasts a while, that you don't burst your own bubble. (laughs) 
<laughs> that we're able to maintain it. So this is a way of beginning to think about what progress is going to be for you rather than having a bigger, fancier uh, bubble with more rainbow colors or anything like that. What we're really looking for is to get ourselves into a um, very worthwhile, wholesome, uh, satisfied state and be able to maintain that and work with keeping it strong, which means now we've really got to uh, figure out how to keep the things that will take us out of that state out of the mind. Mm -hmm. And so we'll talk about this next time. If you'll remind me of that, take a note saying we're going to yeah, talk about yeah, yeah. how to, how to, how to, uh, to develop the skills of getting into it and then maintaining it. That sounds great. So that's what we're going to do tomorrow or whenever you call again next. But by okay. the way, thanks a lot for telling me about your daughter and how she's beginning to get it. Oh, no, th thank you so much. It's, um, we, and and I, I meant to say, you know, to I often, nearly every day, I'll listen to one of your previous discussions with another pupil uh, and that introductory series you did with Martin. Uh, I wanted to thank you both for that, Martin as well. He's a really bright, sharp guy that articulates his experience, I think, extremely well. And it's, it's been very valuable, that. Um, so thank you both. Excellent. May you become enthusiastic with the Dhamma. I am. Oh, just before I go... Um, in terms of suitors and translations, are there any particular places I should go? Books or online? I use Suta Central. Suta Central. And the reason that I use Suta Central is because uh, Subharo's translations have yeah. the have the ability to put the poly line by line or side by side and you can turn the poly dictionary on so you can roll over the poly and see what the dictionary is that and sounds so that's, great yeah so that's the reason that i use that is because i can uh i never want to hear what the uh the english language translation is what i want to see is to find it uh, what I'm looking for because I know what it's like in the English. I locate it in the English and get down to the line that I'm looking for and then I go by with that dictionary point by point to look at what the, the definitions poly. of the words are in the poly. Brilliant. Suta Central. Suta Central. That's a good place. I don't trust anybody's translations into English yet. I'm starting to understand that this is a real problem. It's not a problem at all. It's a wonderful investigation. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Look, you have a... Uh, enjoy your weekend. Thank okay, you. Okay, we'll, speak we'll soon. see you later. Yeah. Cheers. Mm -hmm. Bye.